Let's, let's pray to begin. Lord, I thank you, God, for, uh, for this day. Lord, we know that the, uh, the sun is going to shine soon. <laughs> we thank you, God, for the rain as, it, uh, as it's one more thing that shows us, that displays your greatness and your love as you uh, shower um, rain upon us and upon the earth. Father, I just pray this morning that uh, we would have open hearts and open ears to hear and uh, be willing, God, to do what it is that you are calling us to do, each one of us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I heard a story recently on CBC Radio about a man who got robbed. Did anybody catch this about a week ago? Apparently this man said, he said this, so, so I was leaving work only to find a thief in my truck in the parking lot. I yelled, hey! And then the thief began to run. So naturally, as a man, I chased after him. And then I began thinking, what am I doing? What am I going to do if I do catch this guy? But I kept on running. And soon, the two of us came on this, upon this four-lane highway. And it had a median in the middle of it. And the thief, he cleared the first two lanes okay. And then he jumped over the median. The next thing I see, this man gets, gets hit by a car going about 50. And what I remember seeing the body go up and hearing the sound of the body hitting the ground. Suddenly this man who was at one moment an enemy was now in need of my help. And so this guy goes on to tell the story that he calls 911 in trying to get help for this other man. What I found most interesting about this story and thought-provoking was this. Was this his enemy? This thief who had been caught in the act of stealing was initially, by the nature of their broken relationship, was this man's enemy. However, in his human capacity for compassion, this very same man, this enemy, became a brother in need of help. So in the late 1990s, I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself. From 1996 to 2001, I attended Alberta Bible College in Calgary. And one of my professors, John Wilson, uh, we were in class one day, and Mr. Wilson said this. He said, when preaching, it is important to stay on topic. And then quite spontaneously, he shouted out, get a verse! It was quite funny. What he meant by that was simple. Choose one verse for your message that can be a kind of plumb line for all of the points in your message. Get a verse! So I got a verse. And uh, some of you know what a plumb line is. Anyway, a plumb line is, yeah, so I'm going to try and stay on topic. When I start doing the plumb line thing, just say, Jesse! Okay. So, uh, <laughs> the verse I got for today is Philippians 2.13. Philippians 2.13. For God is working in you, giving you the desire to obey Him and the power to do what pleases Him. Again, this is our verse for today. For God is working in you, giving you the desire to obey Him 
and the power to do what pleases Him. Isn't that awesome? Last week, Pastor Jason reminded us that we were celebrating the most important day, or pardon me, the most important event in history. So about 2,000 years ago, on Good Friday, Jesus died. And on Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the grave. He is risen. Good. (laughs) If He is risen, then the cross is empty and the tomb also is empty. Have you ever thought about this? What if Jesus had remained in the tomb? Now, I realize this is a hypothetical question. But have you ever wondered, what if God did not raise Jesus back to life? Based on what we know of Jesus and what he said about himself and revealed about his nature, Philippians 2, 6, and 6, 2, 6 to 8 says this, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, if Jesus had stayed dead, if one person of the Godhead or the Trinity died, what would have happened? What would have all life... Sorry, what would happen to all of life? What would happen to all time? The entire universe, would it cease to exist? If Jesus was in very nature God, and God was dead, and if he stayed dead, then what? I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, That is the risk that Jesus took in coming to earth in the first place. And I don't know whether or not all of life as we know it would have ended. Have you ever thought of that? This is the stuff I think about when I'm driving a bus. (laughs) You know, people, people get on and they get off, and their bus driver is trying to figure out the mysteries of the universe while navigating these winding roads. But anyway, Jesus the Messiah, he is not dead. We serve and worship and listen to the voice of the risen Savior. We are a part of the church, the family of the living God. This is a book by a guy by the name of Don Everts called Jesus with Dirty Feet. This is what he says in here about the church. The church is an immense nation, a worldwide family of devoted followers. From every age, every race, every country imaginable, talk about diversity. Let's open our Bibles. We're going to look at Romans chapter 5, if you have your Bibles. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. To get a sense of what it is to live in this family of God. Naturally, we all get along with people who are similar to us, right? But the bride of Christ, the church, the institute that Jesus set up, is a diverse group of people. Surely, God does not expect
expect us to get along with everyone, does he? Let's read Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. We can rejoice too. Sorry, reading the wrong translation here. The NIV, you've got it in front of you probably. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. Okay, there's a lot, a lot in there. Rejoicing in sufferings, perseverance, character, hope. I I love the verse, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Amen? But life is messy. Life is complicated. Relationships oftentimes are difficult. Maybe this week we should be carving out some time to meditate on this passage, Romans 5, and what it means to our lives our specific situations, to our relationships. Let's continue reading. Verse 6. Now this is from the New Living Translation uh, because I like it. Okay. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now no one is likely to die for a good person, though someone might be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, He will certainly save us from God's judgment. For since we were restored to friendship with God by the death of His Son, while we were still His enemies, we will certainly be delivered from eternal punishment by His life. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God, all because of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us in making us friends with God. People who have been adopted into God's family have a new life and a new set of priorities for life. So last week, Pastor Jason challenged each of us to take one step closer to the family of God. This week, I want to encourage all of us to look deeper into what it means to be a part of this family, how being a member of God's family affects all of our lives and all of our relationships. I'm going to ask right now for Greg and Bill, which is my dad, but I'm going to call you Bill today. Uh, Greg and Bill, would you come and share some reading with us? Dad, you could stand here and Greg, you stand over there. This is also from uh, Romans 5. Okay, here, let me start here. I'll read yours. This is at, uh, pardon me. This is uh, Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. If you have it in your Bibles, you can follow along. When Adam sinned, 
sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone. So for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given. But it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died. From the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit command of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. Would the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many? But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation. But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man Adam caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness, for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes. Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many become sinners. But because of one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But, as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So, just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, just two seconds. Uh, sure. Yes. Um, what I did was, uh, I didn't do a very well, good job, but <laughs> trying to represent all the different, or a few uh, nations of people and lovers. <laughs> so it is worldwide. And I've got friends all over the world. And mankind, they're lost. <laughs> and I, this is what I tried to represent. Uh, different nations, different groups of people, and uh, it's the eagle feathers too. <laughs> and uh, yeah, a lot of nations are lost. <laughs> and I've been, I gave my life up to the Lord 34 years ago to go His way, not my way. <laughs> He's led me out here in the last month and a half <laughs> to live out here for a reason. And slowly I'm, I'm learning why. And thank you, it was an honor. And I've only been, I've only been here for <laughs> most of the bit. And I got asked to be up here, so, <laughs> you know, my name is Greg, and I'm uh, very grateful for all of us. Thank you, Dave.
So as I continue, um, this is the contrast that we just read between Adam, the first man, and Jesus, the second man. And these are things that I want you, I don't know if you can see them, so we'll have to read them. Uh, I want you to be meditating on as we, uh, as we continue. So Adam, by his one sin, by his one act of sin, brought about sin and death and condemnation and disobedience. And he made sinners of all of us. And he brought guilt. And, and we contribute to that as well, don't we? <laughs> and Jesus, the second man, by his one act of righteousness, he brought about God's gracious gift, wonderful grace, which rules, a gift, the gift of forgiveness, that we were made right with God. The gift of righteousness. Live in triumph over sin and death. Right relationship with God and new life for everyone. So it's in Romans 5 that we heard Greg and Bill read that we find an incredible contrast between being born into and being a part of the human family or the human race and being a part of and being born into God's family. Now that last part that Bill and Greg read together, let me just touch on it. It says, Now God's wonderful kindness rules instead. God's wonderful kindness rules instead. What does that look like? If God's wonderful kindness rules in our hearts, rules in our families, in our church, in our community, what kind of people should we be? I think you're going to see a theme here a little bit, but on April 3rd on CBC Radio, uh, I, I heard this interview with Albie Sachs. Does anybody know who Albie Sachs is? Anybody hear the interview? Does anybody like CBC right now? <laughs> okay, well, anyways, that's good, because this will be the first time you heard it. So, so Albie Sachs was on CBC Radio in an interview. And I've got his... Uh, a little bit of who he is, and then we're going to listen to, a, to a, a few minutes of a clip from that interview. Albie Lewis Sachs was born in Johannesburg, South Africa in 1935 to Emil and Ray Sachs. His career in human rights activism started in 1952 when as a 17-year-old second-year law student at the University of Cape Town, Albie took part in the Defiance of Unjust Laws campaign. He began his practice as an advocate at the Cape Bar when he was just 21. And most of his work involved defending people charged under apartheid's racist statutes and repressive security laws. Many of the people he defended were facing the death sentence. And as a result of his work, he was raided by the security police subjected to banning orders restricting his movement. He was placed in solitary confinement for 168 days without trial. So just about six months in solitary, solitary confinement. He, was, uh, pardon me, he eventually went into exile in 1966. In exile during the 1980s, Albie Sachs worked closely with Oliver Tambo, the leader of the African National Congress, ANC, and helped draft the organization's code of conduct and statutes. On April 7, 1988, 
Maybe you've heard this part of his, this, this part of his story. On April 7, 1988, a bomb was placed in his car at Maputo by South African security agents and it blew up and he lost his right arm and the sight of one eye. After recovering from the effects of the bomb blast, he devoted himself full-time to preparations for a new democratic constitution for South Africa. And finally, in 1990, he returned home. At that time, he played an active role in the negotiations which led to South Africa becoming a constitutional democracy. After the first democratic election in 1994, he was appointed by then-President Nelson Mandela to serve on the newly established Constitutional Court. As a Constitutional Court judge, Justice Albie Sachs was the chief architect of the post-apartheid Constitution of 1996. As one of the 11 green-robed judges, he participated in landmark rulings. In addition to his legal work, he has traveled to many countries sharing his experiences in order to help heal divided societies. He has also been engaged in the sphere of art and architecture and was, also, and was involved with the de development of the Constitutional Court Building and its art collection. Albie Sachs has authored several books, including The Jail Diary of Albie Sachs in 1966. In 1990, he wrote The Soft Vengeance of a Freedom Fighter, traced with triumphant convalescence after the bombing. And it's a movie that's actually coming out this year called The Soft Vengeance of a Freedom Fighter. In 1991, Albie Sachs received the Allen Patton Award for Soft Vengeance of a Freedom Fighter. As Albie was recovering in a London hospital from the car bomb, he received a note that read this, Don't worry, Comrade Albie, we will avenge you. What kind of country would it be, he wondered, if it ended up filled with people who were blind and without arms? If we achieved democracy, freedom, and the rule of law, he said to himself, that will be my soft vengeance. Roses and lilies will grow out of my arm. You play that clip for us from the interview. Like Albie Sachs, who committed his life, who's, he's still alive, by the way, I don't like to talk about people like they're dead, but who committed his life to the injustices of South Africa, we too ought to pay attention to the injustices in our world. And like Albie Sachs, we don't have to have hatred for those people who hurt us. You know, I, I'm certain that nobody here has had their arm and sight lost in a car bomb. But maybe, less physically speaking, and more emotionally speaking, you and I have been hurt by other people. If God's wonderful kindness ruled in our hearts, in our families, in our church, in our community, what difference would it make? I read the story of the man and the thief, and the truck thief, and of Albie Sachs. I read those stories because I believe these are narratives of universal themes. How infinitely important it is for us 
to live transcendent lives, to recognize the bigger picture in this world, much bigger than the smaller stories we live each day. What if we as individuals, and if we collectively as a body of believers, if we were receptive to God's wonderful kindness, consistently ruling, flowing, and overflowing out of our lives? What if we allowed God to be working in us, giving us real, daily desires to obey Him and trusting in His power to do what pleases Him? Most of you know I've got kids. I've got three of my own and a stepdaughter. And in the last eight years or so, since being a parent, I've gotten a much better sense of what God, the Father, desires from us, for me, what it is that would please him. I get it a lot better now. It would please me if my kids would obey me, but it would thrill me if my kids grew to desire to obey me. Not be stubborn, not be sassy, and not make other people afraid to be left alone in the room with them. And I'm guessing that you are like me. You probably think you have fantastic kids. In fact, I think it's natural for us as parents and grandparents to think we have the greatest kids or grandkids in the whole world. But I've heard it said this way. I've heard it said that to determine whether or not you have great kids, rather than subjectively thinking that your kids are great, we should gauge our kids' greatness by whether or not other people think they are great. Here's some food for thought. Can I propose the idea that the same may also be true for the family of God? In other words, if we think we're pretty good at following Jesus and loving people, that's one thing. But if other people think that God has great kids, that His children are loving and kind and patient, isn't that maybe a better gauge for how we're doing? How do you think we, the church, are doing from the world's perspective? Now, I'm going to get to how we let God's loving kindness rule in our lives in a minute. But first, if we let God's loving kindness rule, what would be the result? It would, the result would be that we would be more like Jesus. It would result in us being loving people. Loving ourselves, loving our spouses, loving our kids, loving our friends, loving our neighbors. And in God's family, letting God's kindness rule would result in us loving our siblings, our brothers and sisters inside the church, and also loving those others who don't really like us loving those who don't seem to love us, loving those others who hate us. Now, I pause there because whenever I say hate, I can hear Brianna, my three-year-old, I can hear her voice saying, we don't say hate, Daddy. Jill and I have tried to teach her not to say hate. A three-year-old shouldn't learn words like hate and shut up and no. That would be nice if for many, many years they wouldn't learn the word no. It turns out that I'm amazed at how often I actually use the word hate in my home. For example, 
I hate pears. I actually hate them. I can't say that I hate pears, or else Brianna will say, don't say hate, Daddy. And then Jill says, we don't say hate, Daddy. Okay, okay, I really dislike pears. A lot. Now, interestingly, we read about loving those who hate us. I mean, those who really, really dislike us a lot. In the Bible, loving our enemies is found in both the Old and New Testament. In fact, it's in the Bible at least three times. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 12. Romans 12, verses 20 and 21. Romans 12, verses 20 to 21. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. This is the Apostle Paul quoting from Proverbs, chapter 25, verse 21 and 22 from the Old Testament. The third time loving our enemies is found, that I found, is in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to, 40, to 45, where Jesus says, now this is Jesus, you have heard it said that the law of Moses says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you. How can I do that? I mean, really, how can we do that? That which is so unnatural, so radical, so against the grain. If we avoided our enemies, we would be justified. If we cursed those who cursed us, people probably wouldn't blame us. But if we did those things, are we any different? Is there a supernatural way in which we can approach our relationships? I'm going to call somebody out here. Rudy? You shared something with me about 12 or 13 years ago that I'll never forget. And I talked to him this morning because I wanted to ask permission to share this story. So we were at Bible study together, and Rudy said, You know how I pray? I start with a blank slate, a clear, empty mind, an open heart. I ask God, Lord, what do you want? What can I pray for? And he speaks to me. He speaks through me. That's awesome, Rudy. (laughs) This is the how of letting God's kindness rule in our lives. This is how our lives can be supernaturally completely different. The cross is empty and the tomb is empty. And with a blank slate and an empty and clear mind and an open heart, we too can be receptive to God's supernatural power and let God's loving kindness rule. Get a verse. Remember that verse? Get a verse. Philippians 2.13 For God is working in you. God is giving you the desire to obey Him. And God is giving you the power to do what pleases Him. I want to close with a final story about a personal enemy of mine. If I can get through it. (laughs) So as a bus driver for about two months now, I've had one obnoxious passenger. One. We'll call him Jay. 
Very quickly, I knew that this was going to be trouble. After just a few minutes, and after Jay had sat down at the back of the bus, he came to the front of the bus and said, haven't you got any music on this thing? I was, of course, listening to CBC radio. And this was the first time someone had a problem with it. (laughs) But I obliged and turned on some music. Well, a few minutes later, apparently I was going too fast. Hey, can you slow down? And before I was even able to shoot back with, Sir, I'm not even doing the speed limit, I hear, Hey, can you slow down? I don't care what the speed limit is. We're flying around back here. (laughs) Okay, I thought, sure you are. Sorry, I confessed. At this point, I started to get quite irritated. My wife might know something about people telling you how to drive. Anyway, I felt my body temperature rise. And I spied on myself a little bit and thought, Jesse, hey, cool it. Don't let this thing escalate. Uh, Then about half an hour later, a third time. Can you please slow down? Jeez. Sorry. I said sorry. But my mind went to other places. (laughs) I mean, I could say I've got a schedule to keep. Hey man, I've been driving for 20 years. Who does this guy think he is? And then I realized, what am I going to do? Like the guy in the first story. What am I going to yell back? What am I going to ask him to get off the bus? Get in a fist fight with this guy? All of those things seemed rather absurd. And then I remembered how important it is to simply stay professional. My mind went blank. I said in a silent prayer. I said a silent prayer and one word came to me. Diffuse, diffuse, diffuse. In other words, diffuse the situation so as to not let this thing escalate and not let Jay get the best of me. As we approached his stop, Jay asked me, so how often do you come up here? Uh, Once a week. Oh, okay, well, we'll be seeing you quite a bit then. (laughs) Oh, great. (laughs) So I let him off and was on my way. And a few minutes later... At my turnaround, a man approached me. He asked, was there a fellow about your age on the bus? Yeah, I said, he's back there a ways. Do you want me to circle back? If you don't mind, that would be awesome. I'm thinking, well, I do mind, but uh, let's... (laughs) All right, Jesse, let's finish this thing. So we drove back to get Jay, and this man shared with me a little more of the story. It became clear that Jay had a pretty stress-filled day. We picked Jay up, and you know what? His attitude changed. He couldn't believe I had gone the extra mile. Literally, I guess. (laughs) I dropped them off at their place, and Jay said... He said, hey, thank you so much. You didn't have to do this. And I stuck out my hand, and I gave him a firm handshake. (laughs) And as a bus driver, you have to stay professional. So I said, customer service is number one, brother. And as I drove home, I realized that I had just had a supernatural encounter.
to close, I just want to pray. And I ask, after we pray, we're going to sing a song. And after that, um, there's, an, there's an opportunity, there's a time for each of us to offer God a clean slate, a clear mind and an open heart. For if God wants to do something in your life today or in my life today, I pray that we would be open to that. And I've, I'm asking the, those of you who are leaders um, in this service today, sorry, I'll get, I'll get the names just in case you forget. Hey, am I a leader today? <laughs> there it is. So I'm just asking um, Dan and Alma, Pauline, Gary, Susan, Dave Ringheim, Marg, Mike, and Walter, if you would stay at the front with me. And I'm asking each of you, each of us, that if there's a relationship that God is reminding you of that needs supernatural healing, that you would take that risk that Jesus took, a a small piece of that risk, and step out and say, Lord, help me heal this relationship. Because the testimony and the witness that we have in the world is only as good as the love that we have for those in the church and those outside the church. And we can only truly love people if we allow God to love through us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, for my friends, my brothers and sisters here. And Lord, I don't think any of us have had our arms blown off or or a car, car bomb set to to ruin us, but but we have been hurt. And Lord, I ask for your supernatural power to help us heal those relationships, whatever capacity that is, Lord. And even if this morning is just the first small step or maybe it's the 17th small step of healing relationships in our lives, God. I pray you would give us the courage and the boldness to offer our minds and our hearts to you and allow you to do something supernatural in us. Thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.